Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sami Siddiqui. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Torsten Weber about his new book, Embracing Asia in China and Japan, Asianism Discourse and the Contest for Hegemony, published by Palgrave in 2018. Dr. Weber is a historian of modern East Asia at the German Institute for Japanese Studies. Welcome to New Books in Japanese Studies, Dr. Weber. Okay, so our first question is always biographical. Uh, could you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where did you grow up and how did you become interested in East Asian history? Um, yeah, thank you for, for having me. Um, I um, spent the first about 24 years of my life um, living in and near Mainz, uh, a city at the Rhine River in Western Germany, not uh, too far from Frankfurt. Um, in my youth, um, I had very little contact with East Asia, actually um, uh, almost nothing, um, but uh, curiously, my um, childhood dentist was uh, Mr. Fukazawa from Japan. Um, I never asked him where exactly he was uh, from in Japan, and I do regret this uh, to this day, uh, to be honest. Um, I recently learned that he has retired, so I guess I missed my chance to find out uh, more about uh, Fukazawa Sensei. Um, as a student, I was always interested in history, and history seemed, uh, therefore, a natural choice when I started my undergraduate studies at Mainz University. Uh, but there were no courses in East Asian history at my university, uh, so I just focused on methods, theories, and European history. It was at the um, history department in Mainz um, that I saw a notice at the seminar's notice board, um, at the time a physical notice board, actually not a virtual one, um, which advertised a scholarship to study um, abroad in China. Um, it's quite a long story how I ended up there, um, but I did eventually go to China um, and spent two years studying Chinese at Fudan University in Shanghai. Um, after that time, I never went uh, back to continue my original studies at Mainz University, but first did my um, MA in Chinese studies at SOAS in London and later a PhD in Japanese studies at Heidelberg University. Great, thank you. That's interesting. I didn't know all of this, so it's it's always great to hear how people got into their, their research areas. Um, now, could you tell us about the genesis of this par- project? What made you want to write Embracing Asia? Yeah, actually, there's a quite specific starting point. Um, uh, one of the first texts in my PhD program um, was Takeuchi Yoshimi's uh, What is Asianism? Asia Shugito Ananika. Um, I had to read this in the Japanese original, which was really, really tough um, at the time. And I only managed to read it thanks to the help of one of my senpai. Um, I was fascinated with the depth of the analysis and also the engagement with Asianism as Ajashugi or Dai Ajashugi by Takeuchi. And um, after uh, reading the text, um, however, I was not really sure whether Asianism had actually existed as an ism in Japan and in Japanese, in the Japanese language, because the most explicit examples Takeuchi gives are Sinyatsen's Greater Asianism Lecture and Writings by the um, Chinese Communist so I asked myself, what about Japan? Um, was Asianism um, in the end uh, something Chinese or Chinese invention? 
um, what did this newism mean to the Japanese when it emerged? Um, all these questions uh, later actually became research questions uh, for my book. And a second important point is that uh, Takeuchi, um, who was a Japanese sinologist, was greatly concerned with uh, China. So um, in my understanding, at least, he always thought Japan through the lens of China, and he was very interested in Japanese-Chinese interactions. Um, this also greatly influenced my own view of Asianism and actually of my whole um, um, academic studies. Um, and to me, then, Asianism cannot and could not be um, uh, thought as Japanese Asianism, as many people um, had done so far, but Asianism as transnational discourse, in particular um, Japanese-Chinese transnational discourse. Um, so now, could you explain what you mean by the title? In doing so, could you tell us about the focus and the central argument of the book? Um, yes, uh, embracing Asia um, is in fact not a reference to John Dow's embracing uh, defeat, uh, which is very famous and people ask me about it. But it's actually um, a term that Ari Hotta, another scholar of, of, of Asianism, um, had uh, used in her work. And um, I must have read this uh, very early on in my research. And then apparently um, I had forgotten about it, uh, but um, I must have remembered it subconsciously and only later found the reference uh, to her use of the term again. Um, embracing Asia for me uh, means to approach, deal, accept Asia in a way that looks friendly or can be friendly, but can also be forceful, um, almost like strangling Asia and, as Hota herself writes, strangling um, Japan itself. More generally, I was also thinking of more and more people becoming willing to take Asia and Asianism as concepts seriously and to use it, and especially to use it positively. So the basic argument uh, then uh, for my book is that uh, during the time frame that I study, Asianism um, and Asia uh, changed from a foreign referential, foreign imposed, peripheral and mostly negative and denied or largely ignored concept to one that was self-referential, self-defined, central, and widely affirmed, and in fact embraced. Through Asianism, um, I argue Asia emerged as a central uh, geographical, cultural, racial, and political category in both Chinese and Japanese published discourse. That's great. Um, that perfectly sums up the uh, the argument and the and the central topic of the book. Thank you. Um, now, Asianism is a complex political and intellectual movement, and you have a really detailed, conceptually sophisticated exploration of Pan-Asianism in your first two chapters. Could you talk about the heterogeneity of the movement across time, space, and ideological spectrum? Could you also tell us what you think is the best way for us to think about Pan-Asianism? Yeah, the, um, I actually try to avoid the term movement when it comes to Pan-Asianism or Asianism, um, because for me, um, Asianism about all represents an intellectual process, um, a negotiation of a term with tremendous impact, at least potentially. Um, Asianism, I think the study um, shows, um, has meant um, many things to many people, and that's why socialists, liberals, um, nationalists, chauvinists, imperialists could all use the term for their own political agendas. Um, the reason is that really Asianism, as the term um, uh, really says is it doesn't mean much more um, initially at least than um, an Asia principle, Asiaism. So obviously it could be the Asia principle 
to unite under Japan's leadership or of Asian self-determination, of Asia as anti-white or anti-Western, or the principle of Asia for the poor and depressed people. For me, the main point is that during the 1910s and 1920s, this Asianism facilitated a discourse between a large number of people of very different convictions. And um, as a result, it changed how people thought about Asia. Um, it initiated, um, in my understanding, a process uh, during which many people started thinking about what Asia is um, or could be, and in this way they made it their own Asia. Uh, whereas previously Asia had been defined only by Westerners, and usually negatively as something that the West is not, um, or which um, the West has invented, very similar um, to how um, Edward uh, Said in the 1970s defined Orientalism. But Asianism discourse was a reversed uh, process of self-affirmation, although it did contain elements of what um, Arif Dirlik um, has called self-orientalization. And this plurality, I think, is reflected in the, in the discourse um, that I call Asianism discourse. That's great. Thank you so much. Um, that really helps. Um, now, in Chapter 2, you look at the impact and legacy of Takeuchi Yoshimi. Uh, who you mentioned earlier, um, his utopic understanding of Pan-Asianism and demonstrate how this comes in part through his focus on the Meiji period and skipping the Taisho era, which is the focus of your book. Uh, could you give us uh, a critical appraisal of Takeuchi's ideas and influence on the historiography of Pan-Asianism? I think for all researchers of uh, Asianism, uh, Takeuchi's impact really is fundamental. Um, I'm, I personally, I've never read any engagement with Asianism as particular and also as passionate, which I think is special. He's really passionate about, about Asianism as Takeuchi's. Um, and that is why, because, well, Takeuchi was not only a scholar of Asianism, but he was also a kind of Asianist himself, who, um, especially after the war, um, sought to raise interest in Asia again among his fellow Japanese. Um, he did this both in the wartime and also in the post-war era, but especially in the post-war era, where he uh, feared that um, the fellow Japanese would become too American or Americanized and would uh, forget about um, their Asian uh, roots or Asian uh, comrades. Um, but there are also a few things um, with which I don't fully um, agree. As you say, um, he largely skips the Taisho period of the 1910s, 1920s, um, to demonstrate, um, if I if I may generalize a bit, um, how the good Asianism bits of the Meiji period turned bad or empty and became propaganda for the greater East Asian pro-prosperity sphere in the Showa period. Um, to this end, Takeuchi works a lot with dichotomies and binaries, such as invasion versus solidarity, or divide Asia versus leave Asia. Um, they are very important um, ways to approach different aspects of Asianism, um, I do agree. But there is much more to it, um, I found out during my research. So I was very happy um, I encountered Takuchi Yoshimi's writings um, early on in my research, but I also think it should only be a starting point for research into Asianism and not the conclusion to what Asianism was and uh, is. Great, thank you. Um... Now, one of the most interesting parts uh, of that chapter was the way you complicate the Koa Datsua binary in the conversa conversation surrounding the Japanese Empire. 
Could you explain what this binary is for those listeners who are not experts in modern Japanese history and what your argument is? Yes, uh, of course. Um, Koa um, means uh, revive uh, in Asia. And it has uh, traditionally been associated um, also by Takeuchi with the good guys, uh, good Asians. Those who had a sincere interest in China, for example, went there, studied Chinese, and made Chinese friends. Now, um, Datsua um, leaves uh, Asia and is um, usually associated with uh, Fukuzawa Yukichi and others who looked uh, down upon Asians as backwards and uncivilized. Uh, but instead promoted learning from the West. So in a nutshell, you say that uh, it is a kind of pro-Asianism that is anti-Asianism or anti-Westernism that is pro-Westernism. But Japan's position within this binary is never really clear and it also changed or could change uh, depending on political conviction or preference. And it could also, and it did change with time, for me, the biggest problem uh, with this binary is that, from my historical perspective, um, in the time frame that I study, no one ever discusses uh, Datsua. So it's it's a concept that was, um, uh, um, of course, used by Fukuzawa in the um, 1880s, but uh, the significance that is given to Datsua is, is ahistorical. It is um, not only not historical, but also a stereotype that oversimplifies the different positions on Asia that existed at the time. So, um, in, in conclusion, you could say that Datsua is not the traditional uh, antithesis of Asianism, and, and Asianism is not the antithesis of what later became summarized as uh, the Datsua or leading Asia position. I think this is quite complicated, and um, um, I, 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 I write, I think, um, uh, quite a bit about this in, in, in this chapter, um, but um, for me the bottom line really is that um, it the binary or the dichotomy um, doesn't help as much um, as other approaches to clarify um, what Asianism meant for the people who discussed Asianism as Asia should be at the time. That's great. Um, if you don't mind me asking, could you expand a little bit on the Fukuzawa Yukichi's uh, Datsua part? Um, you know, how is it a historical? Uh, if you don't mind me asking, just because I thought that was one of the most interesting parts of this chapter. Um, it is. It is it, of course, it was written in in eighty uh, in the eighteen eighties and was published, and it um, um, may have been read by a few people. Um, Fukuzawa Yukichi, of course, was was a well-known um, um, intellectual, but in all the writings um, that I looked at um, that actually discussed what Asianism is, it never appeared. And um, other scholarship has identified that um, the uh, his that alone only became well-known and widespread um, in the in the nineteen thirties. So um, um, a bit later, and um, actually the the the, the real um, the real boom in, in Datsua was in the post-war period when um, Japan turned again um, towards the West the second time after the Meiji Restoration. And this time, um, well, just like after the Meiji Restoration, not completely uh, voluntarily. And um, in this context, it seemed to be um, a perfect maybe prophecy of the failure to engage uh, with Asia and um, the preference uh, that, or the way that Japan should have moved uh, um, 
chosen anyway to um, look more into the West and for the Western model rather than um, uh, dealing with Asia. Because even the um, the aggressive policy, the imperialist policy towards Asia was by some people uh, seen as um, not um, a realization of Fukuzawa's um, advice to leave Asia, but rather the opposite, to engage with Asia, namely in a way, even though it was only propaganda, to create a greater East Asia focus. That is here to look for um, um, an engagement with, with Asia that um, at least on the surface looked like Japan was going to uh, seek unity and solidarity um, with other Asians. And this was harshly criticized in the post-war period. So Fukuzawa Yukichi became a key point of reference in the post-war period in the first writings on Asianism uh, by Takeuchi and, and others um, in the post-war period. They all deal with Datsu Avant. But during the um, Taisho period, nobody writes about the Datsu Avant. <laughs> That's why I, I think it's, um, it is ahistorical in that sense. Excellent. No, that's great. That clarifies um, the Datsua part that you were you were talking about. Thank you. Um, now, in Chapter 3, uh, which is entitled Asia Becomes an Ism, Early Chinese and Japanese Asianism, could you tell us what you mean by Asia becoming an ism in the early Taisho period? Yes, um, Asia um, as a concept, of course, had been around for some time, and uh, by the early uh, 20th century, um, several concepts that implied Asian commonality um, um, had been discussed in public discourse, such as same script, uh, same race, or Asia for the Asians. Um, but this Asia discourse really only gained momentum with the emergence and the spread of the uh, neologism called Asianism, um, Asia as an ism. Um, it is because, important because um, then, as an ism, it could be discussed alongside other influential isms, such as various um, nationalisms, internationalism, worldism, um, militarism, liberalism, and westernism. So it had the family of other isms that it could refer to, and um, in this context it was um, discussed, I think, in a, uh, in a way that um, loose concepts such as same script, same race, and Asia for the Asians could not. And in, in fact, the first use of the term I found um, in a local Kyushu newspaper in 1892 exactly um, appeared in the context of other ism, isms, namely um, in the context of Japanism, Nihon Shugi, Euro-Americanism, Obe Shugi, and um, kind of um, worldism, the Sekai Shugi. But this isn't only, or Asianism here, it appears in 1892, but it only became widely known and widespread around 1912 and 1913 in the context of um, the racial exclusion legislation in the US and then, of course, uh, during World War One. Great, thank you. Um, now, the next chapter explores conversations surrounding Asianism during World War One. Could you tell the listeners about Japanese imperial policies and interests in China during this period? And could you also give us a taste of some of the Asianist arguments in Japan and China during the Great War? Well, even before World War One, Japan had, um, of course, expanded its uh, empire above all as a result of the First Sino-Japanese War in 1894-95, after which, for example, Japan acquired Taiwan. Um, ever since then, Japan um, had 
pursue the policy of imperial expansion. And uh, it was during the First World War that uh, Japan uh, took over German possessions in China and in the Pacific. Um, according to Asianism as Solidarity, um, it should have returned those positions uh, to those uh, that the Germans had stolen them uh, from in the first place, for example, to the Chinese. Um, but Japan refused and made um, every effort to keep those possessions, including um, in Shandong province in East China, um, where the city of Qingdao is located. Now, as I said earlier, um, both Japanese imperialists and anti-imperialists then started to use their own conceptions of um, Asianism to argue um, for a Japan-led Asia as empire or for an Asia for the Asians um, in a sense of national self-determination. Both sides were often unified in their uh, critique or outright rejection of uh, the West, which was a topic that was particularly of vogue uh, during World War I. Um, culturalist um, Asianism then emerged that argued that the West was in decline and the yardstick of so-called Western civilization, uh, which so many Japanese had believed in, had been wrong. Great, thank you. In Chapter 5, you explore the racialization of the Asianism discourse in the aftermath of the 1919 Racial Equality Bill proposal and the racist immigration policies in the U.S. that you mentioned earlier. Could you tell us about how and why race became a central feature of Asianism discourse in the post-Versailles period? Race um, actually had always played some role in uh, Asia, Asia discourse, and Asia was often used synonymously with the yellow people, uh, the home of the yellow people. So um, sometimes um, it was reduced to racial features. But in 1919, racialist and political um, Asianism crossed their path uh, when the Japanese and the Chinese delegation at the Paris Peace Conference uh, together proposed to abandon all racial discrimination and to make this racial equality a principle um, of the League of Nations. However, the uh, proposal, um, as is well known, was defeated, and this defeat further fueled the acceptance of Asianist and anti Western sentiments in uh, Japan in 1919 and the following years. And this was very clearly and, and, um, linked to the, the racial, um, the rejection of the racial um, equality proposal. So it became a racialized um, Asianist discourse um, already at that time. And even before actually, um, namely, as I, as I mentioned earlier, in 1912, 1913, when Asianism became uh, widely spread in Japanese newspapers, um, at that time, um, the trigger was that the state of California and later U.S. federal law restricted and later completely forbade Japanese immigration to the U.S. Um, based on race. So um, uh, race um, had, in that sense, played an important role in promoting Asianism in, in Japan. And actually, the, the very first use of Asianism that I could identify in a national Japanese newspaper was in fact in 1913 uh, when there was a debate of whether the Japanese should be banned from immigration to the US or some US states like the mother Asians or if the Japanese should maybe be treated differently from other Asians and not be banned because of an assumed higher civilization and level compared to other Asians even though they were racially Asians um, then when the Japanese were finally included in this uh, total immigration ban 
uh, by Asians um, in 1924, um, this became the peak of public Asianism discourse in Japan. And maybe uh, was that one moment in history in which Asianism was embraced by more people in Japan than ever before. Great, thank you. Um, now, in the same chapter, you go in depth into the special edition on Greater Asianism by Nihon Oyobi Nihonjin in October 1924. Could you tell us what you found interesting and significant in this journal? In doing so, could you focus on the f figure of Oishi Masami, uh, as I found him to be a fascinating figure, yet someone who has not featured much in the literature thus far? The, uh, the special issue that you mentioned is really fascinating um, because it symbolizes um, the nature of Asianism discourse, um, as I call it. It is really a discourse rather than an ideology um, because people are constantly negotiating its meaning. And the channel was generally on the side of a sort of Asianism as Japanese expansionism and um, imperialism. Um, so it was more, to, to use Takeuchi's um, binary, it was more on the invasion side than on the solidarity side. But uh, this special issue um, also printed a number of extremely critical contributions including some outright dismissals of Asianism as silly, as nonsense, as useless. So it is really quite a remarkable historical document, the diversity, the plurality of opinions, and the, the engagement of so many people with, with the concept who were asked um, actually by the editors of the journal to respond to the question, what is Asianism for me, for you? What does it mean? And what is the future of Asianism? Um, as for Oishi Masami, um, he was a progressive Japanese politician um, interested in Western social science and Western ideas of democracy. He had been active um, in various political movements uh, to promote democracy and uh, people's rights in, in Japan from the early Meiji period onwards. But Oishi also liked China. And uh, very early on, um, he had proposed an alliance between Japan and China. And then he, he went on to propose various alliances, but they always, they had various partners, but always included Japan and China. Um, Oishi wrote uh, the foreword to this special issue that you mentioned, um, and very directly proposed that Japan must be the leader of the United and Asia. Um, and he also proposed the creation of an Asian League of Nations. Um, which uh, was an idea, obviously, in the Chechen um, of the Geneva-based league, which stayed around in Asia discourse um, for quite some time. And it was also one of the aims of the um, Pan-Asian People's Conferences in 1926 and 1937. Great, thank you. Um... Now, in Chapter 6, uh, which is entitled The Regionalization of Asia, Asianism from Below and Its Failure, you focus on two Pan-Asian conferences in the 1920s. You argue that they could easily be dismissed as Japanese imperial propaganda, yet, and I quote from you, how then can we account for the controversial debates during the gatherings, the willingness to accept and include dissonances, and the official state efforts at preventing and even closing the conferences? How do we account for the fact that, despite police and government repression, and despite the limited achievements of the first conference, participants from several countries made the effort to convene a second conference? End quote. Could you expand on this, as it seems to be fundamentally challenging how these conferences have been characterized in some of the literature hmm. thus far? Yes. Um, in, in fact, this was one of the most exciting parts of 
the research for my book, um, also because um, there is very little research actually on, on the conference, or there was at the time when I did the research. And um, as you say, um, um, some of the literature is, is pretty critical of the conferences. Um, most of the literature actually um, neglects the conferences. Um, and others, uh, the minority, I think, of scholars who have dealt with, with the conferences are uh, more positive about them. And um, I, I would say um, we still do lack some documents uh, to conclude convincingly on the, on the nature, kind of a definite answer on the nature of these conferences. But um, I've been able to um, look at a number of documents and um, I was also influenced by um, uh, Jamie Lydin's um, internationalist interpretation of the conferences, and I, I do believe he's right. Um, the conferences were civil society driven gatherings um, that neither the Japanese uh, nor the Chinese government welcomed as um, intelligence uh, from uh, different um, sources uh, tell us, um, not least uh, Chinese and Japanese sources. On the contrary, the, the, the governments, the Chinese and the uh, Japanese governments, they did everything uh, to stop the um, gatherings uh, from taking place. And also they tried to uh, stop people from entering um, uh, Japan um, to participate. And the conference, the first conference, which was supposed to take place in Tokyo, was moved to Nagasaki. Uh, so they wouldn't um, gain too much uh, attraction from international media. And the second uh, convention actually closed after after just a day. Um, so um, the, the governments did not like uh, those those gatherings. Um, according um, to to the sources I found, the participants, however, they were really seriously interested in promoting Asian commonality to exchange and also compromise. Um, compromise maybe where governments were not able to compromise. Uh, so so they tried. Uh, to uh, negotiate things on a civil society level that uh, governments uh, could not do um, officially. And in my reading, they are not um, an expression of um, oppression or hegemony. Um, eventually, of course, the, the conventions failed and um, some of the participants later got involved in different, um, less egalitarian Asianist uh, projects. And I think that's why some scholars have um, dismissed the 26 and 27 conferences in uh, Nagasaki and Shanghai as um, imperialist or chauvinist. But I don't really think that's right. Um, these two conferences um, are fundamentally different, um, let's say, from the 1943 uh, Greater East Asia Conference, um, which was state center, state sponsored propaganda, and definitely not a voluntary gathering. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, I really found that chapter really fascinating and, and convincing. Um, now, the next chapter, you talk about how Pan-Asianism gets appropriated from above by the Japanese empire, particularly from the 1930s. Something you focus on in this chapter is how Pan-Asianist ideas and speeches of Sun Yat-sen, the famous Chinese nationalist figure, were appropriated by both the Japanese empire as well as other Chinese nationalists after his death. Could you expand on this aspect and tell the listeners what the significance of this is for your argument? Um, yes, the um, Sun Yat-sen is a very central figure when you talk about um, Asianism. Um, but the Japanese government had always been suspicious of Sun. Um, after all, he was a revolutionary and he was a charismatic leader. Um, 
who may have threatened the success of Japanese expansionist policies on the mainland. Um, so no official, um, affili- no Japanese official affiliated with him when he visited Japan for a last time in uh, 1924, a year, um, or actually several months before um, he died in 1925. During his uh, um, last stay in Japan, he delivered um, his famous uh, speech on greater Asianism, which became iconic, um, really, um, and in which he openly um, criticized Japan. So um, it's not really a surprise that Japanese officials or the Japanese government did not really like him or his speech in particular, at, at least at the time when it was given. Um, but then when uh, the war against China broke out and the Japanese uh, government was kind of desperate to promote as propaganda, of course, um, Japanese-Chinese friendship, um, Sun Yat-sen suddenly appeared to be a perfect reference uh, to friendship and cooperation because he had always been maintained his friendship with, uh, with Japanese supporters and had been to, uh, in Japan a few times and he had great contacts in, in Japan. He was kind of a symbol of this um, um, Sino-Japanese friendship, even though uh, Sun Yat-sen's message to Japan was very, very critical when he, when he talked um, publicly in Japan. Um, but um, during the wartime then, suddenly, uh, Sun's speeches appeared in government, Japanese government-promoted journals, and the Japanese foreign ministry even published a Japanese version of Sun Yat-sen's selected writings and speeches, which is quite quite a thing. Um, a foreign a leader and revolutionary um, gets the honor of being published by, um, by foreign ministry, Japanese foreign ministry. Um, and I, in my view, this is this shows how much the Japanese government had appropriated Asianism and, and, and with regard to to China and as a message to China, but also to the Japanese within Japan, soon yet sense um, Asianism in, in particular. But also in China, and since Asianism became um, a main instrument to gain or to claim legitimacy among the many different factions within and also outside uh, the Kuomintang. Um, most famously, the reorganized national government under Wang Jingwei in Nanjing, um, which is usually pretty, um, characterized as a puppet regime, a Japanese puppet regime, is definitely a collaborationist regime. Um, this government derived its legitimacy from uh, claiming to have inherited the leadership from Sun Yat-sen and their collaboration, and explicitly their collaboration uh, with Japan was justified as being based on Sun's conception of Asianism um, and the, the message, Sun's message of uh, Sino-Japanese friendship. Um, and interestingly, they, they could use the criticism of Japan that, that Sun um, uh, used as the concluding sentence of his famous great um, Asianism speech in, in Kobe in 1924, also to make sure to the Chinese audience that um, this is not a collaboration in a sense that um, Wang Jingwei's regime is just blindly following what the Japanese tell him, but it is, it is an independent government, it is a reorganized uh, national government um, which uh, tries to be good friends with uh, Japan, but it's not a puppet. And in this way, um, referring to Sun Yat-sen, and especially the Great Asian speech, was very handy. Great, thank you. Yeah, that was a really fascinating part of the of the chapter. Um, now, in the, could you read the concluding sentences of your book and tell us what you meant by them? 
In doing so, could you tell us uh, what you think Asia means in our contemporary politics and discourse? Yes. Um, Asia as a concept comes with a history. Much of today's historical baggage or historical significance of Asia has been attached to the concept in Asianism discourse during the two decades that have been studied as the main temporal focus of this book. Today's Asia discourse may rightfully be characterized as a constant and continuing renegotiation of first, remembering its history and simultaneously of second, emancipation from its history in order to deal with the new challenges of the present. These challenges, after all, may not be too different from those of the past. Yes, um, what do I mean? Um, <laughs> well, first, um, the similar challenges um, refer to continuing injustice, oppression, hegemony, and exploitation. Um, times have changed, but also they haven't. Um, this is not a world of equality and fairness. Um, Asia today um, does much less than maybe previously, just by the concept itself represent poverty and injustice, as um, many countries in, in Asia have become rich and, and prosperous. But at least for many people in Asia, um, inter-Asian solidarity and the common experience of colonialism, its legacy, um, is an important aspect of uh, fighting global capitalism, the neoliberal world order, um, injustices in knowledge production, and so on. So in this context, um, some um, Chinese, Taiwanese, Korean scholars have, in the early 2000s, uh, started to rediscover the writings of Takeuchi Yoshimi and his critique of Western capitalism, and they have uh, used that criticism to re-embrace Asia and Asianism as a concept denoting solidarity, um, not only limited uh, to Asia, but uh, basically to all like-minded uh, people or, or everyone who is critical of the um, um, injustices uh, of the injustice uh, global um, um, problems of um, um, unfairness and exploitation and oppression, which are continuing problems, of course, of our, of our time. Um, the problem is that um, outside of maybe the, the Asian context, um, uh, this may not be uh, too uh, problematic, but an Asianism, of course, as it comes with its baggage, with this historical legacy, with this negative historical legacy, um, this can only work um, in the light of this history of Japanese imperialism in Asia, if Asianism, the history baggage is both remembered, it is addressed, it is critically addressed, people show awareness of this, these negative aspects and the negative legacies, but also if um, emancipation from its history is possible. So if, um, if this term remains um, toxic, then it can't be used and the negative legacy will forbid um, any positive use of the concept and then it would also mean to engage maybe differently um, with, with problems um, that could be identified um, with the terms Asia or Asianism. But um, these scholars have used Takeuchi Osumi's um, um, attempt to um, rehabilitate the term and uh, the concept in a way that it allows um, also Japanese um, and, of course, um, especially also previous um, victim nations of Japanese imperialism to embrace the term 
to use it positively and to use it to um, uh, critique uh, current um, problems um, um, of global and um, conditions also in, in, in the nation states in Asia and in the region. Now, by constant continuing um, or constant and continuing renegotiation, um, I mean that today's um, Asianism, um, in the sense that I try to explain um, right now, makes references to historical Asianism. But its meaning is renegotiated in today's political setting, which is um, different, um, of course. Uh, so Japanese politicians, for example, today say, we don't need a strong uh, leader in Asia. Asia is important, but we don't need a leader, um, which is the exact opposite of what many people said in the 1920s, 1930s, and 40s when Japan was strong, and the role of the leader would naturally fall to Japan. On the other hand, um, which I also discuss in, in my book and my final chapter, in 2006, um, the current uh, Chinese foreign minister, um, Wang Yi, proposed in an essay called Neo-Asianism for the 21st Century, an Asianism that was a very um, sino sinocentric approach to Asia. So Asian is now um, as a way to claim regional and global leadership for China, not for uh, Japan, reflecting China's um, new economic and political strength. Um, so today, as uh, back then, um, Asians can be essentialist, uh, referring to assumed unique Asian characteristics or an assumed Asian way of doing things, but it can also be um, very pragmatic um, in a way that uh, um, it can uh, become a slogan for claiming um, leadership um, that um, otherwise may be um, more difficult uh, to claim. Great. Thank you so much. Thanks for those concluding thoughts and for reflecting on the importance of Asianism uh, in our present. Um, so I've taken so much of your time, but before I let you leave, could you tell us what you're working on next? Yes, thank you for uh, giving me the chance to promote my um, uh, current and ongoing um, uh, project, which um, also deals with um, uh, what is the price with uh, um, Japanese, Chinese um, history. Um, it is a project that studies uh, John Rabe's uh, Nanjing Diaries. Um, John Rabe was a, a German businessman who had lived in China for almost exactly 30 years from uh, 1908 to 1938. Um, when he left Nanjing and where he lived since uh, 1931. Um, he had witnessed the Japanese attack and invasion of uh, Nanjing in 1937, and famously he had written a diary uh, with daily entries and lots of documents uh, during the particularly crucial period from September 37 to February 38. Um, Rab is also famous for having organized the International Safety Zone in Nanjing, in which several thousand Chinese were protected from the Japanese um, atrocities in the cities. So I think in, in among researchers, um, Rabe's uh, diaries are relatively well known, but um, um, many don't know that uh, the version that was published in 1997 is not the original version written by Rabe in Nanjing. Um, it is a selection of um, a digest, uh, from a digest version that Rabe wrote in the early 1940s in Berlin, so a rewritten version. Um, I happen to gain access to the full unpublished original version, which is much longer and contains um, also many documents. So I'm, I'm using these sources um, to compare the original and digest versions and also to, uh, compare them with other writings from people who were in Nanjing at the time. Um, I uh, 
try to understand how Rada experienced the war and how he reflected on the war and his experiences, including his uh, humanitarian deeds in his diaries. Um, but I also, from a historiographical perspective, I want to understand why he changed some of his entries and um, what that may tell us about his view of the Japanese, Chinese, of the Nazis, uh, the perpetrators, the victims, and also of his own role and his self-perception. Great. Thank you. That sounds fascinating. Uh, look forward to reading that when it comes out. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for giving me this chance for the interview. Thank you.